that I know. All right, well, good evening. How's everybody? Good. I'm glad to be here. Um, we're going to be in John 17, but I don't want you to open there yet, so leave your Bibles closed for a minute. We'll have a little quiz, a little exercise. Um, glad to be able to be here, glad to be here. Um, I won't tell Jake how many of y'all have told me how glad you are that I can be here on Sunday nights now so that I can preach more on Sunday nights and he can... I've, I've taken from that that you're happy that he can preach less on Sunday nights, but maybe that's not what you meant. Um, just kidding. He's a really good preacher, as, as we all know. Uh, but we're going to be looking at John chapter 17 tonight, and I wonder, I ask you not to open your Bibles, because I wonder, and some of you maybe have already read the bulletin, so have kind of cheated a little bit maybe, but I wonder if I just told you we're going to be preaching on John 17, I wonder if you would know what that passage is about. Um, there's some places in the Bible that we know kind of offhand, um, that we're really, really familiar with, and we know what they are just by their reference or, or, or maybe just by a, a title. Um, so, like, we know what Exodus 20 is and Deuteronomy 5, right? We know what those, those passages are. And if, if you're not familiar with the references, you at least know what I'm talking about if I give you the title of those passages, which is the Ten Commandments, right? You know what the Ten Commandments are. Maybe you don't know where they are. Some of you, when I said Exodus 20, you knew that was Ten Commandments, um, we all know what Psalm 23 is about, right? And if, if by some chance we don't know that, that reference, we know the Lord is my shepherd, we know what that psalm's about. Um, many of us know what, what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is, right? And if you don't know that off the top of your head, when I, if I say the Sermon on the Mount, you know what that's about, which is Matthew 5. Uh, many of us know Genesis 3. If you don't know that reference, you know it by name. If I say the fall, right, you know what that's about. And, and I could go on and on. Matthew 28, right, the Great Commission, we know that one. Um, Romans 8, maybe a little bit harder one, but a lot of us know Romans 8. And if you don't know Romans 8, you might uh, recognize the passage if I say that, that nothing can separate us from God's love, right? You're, you're familiar with that passage. Um, and, but I wonder what comes to mind if I say John 17. I wonder if you know that passage. Um, and if not, I wonder what comes to mind if I say the high priestly prayer, Right? For, for many of us, if I say the high priestly prayer, we probably assume it's probably something in the Old Testament, right? Maybe that long Leviticus passage that we read to, to start the service this, this morning. Um, but it's not. It's actually the New Testament. It's John chapter 17. So go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles out with you. Go ahead and turn to John 17. And you're going to see that this entire chapter, if you have a red letter Bible, this entire chapter is in red letters. right? And you might actually go back and see that John, starting in about... Halfway through chapter 13, um, all the way to chapter 17 is in red, red letters. But chapter 17 is all red letters, okay? And so we know that that means that Jesus is speaking. Uh, so this whole chapter is, is Jesus speaking. But there's something kind of special about this chapter because it's not just Jesus speaking. There are other chapters in the Bible like that, right? I mentioned the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so that's three whole long chapters of Jesus preaching this sermon. So those are all red letters where Jesus is, is speaking um, but there's something a little bit special about John 17 because it's not just Jesus speaking, but it's actually Jesus praying. And so we, we're familiar with the Lord's Prayer, right? If I say the Lord's Prayer, prayer what we think about is, is the Sermon on the Mount where, Matthew, where they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. I think it's in Matthew 6 maybe. And, and Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. And he gives them uh, instructions for praying. Our Father who art in heaven. And, and, and we know that, right? And we call that the Lord's Prayer, and that's a good name for that, for that passage. But it might be a better name to call that the model prayer, 
because that's Jesus teaching us how we should pray. And maybe it might be a good title to call chapter, John chapter 17 the Lord's Prayer because this is actually Jesus praying. Okay, And so we're going to get into what he's praying uh, for, who he's praying for, what he's praying about. And uh, we can divide this chapter up into, into kind of three different sections. Divide this prayer up into three different sections based on uh, what he's praying about or who he's praying for. Okay, And, so the, uh, and we're going to focus on the last section, uh, but, but I want to get there. So we're going to go through the, the rest of it kind of quickly just to, just to get to the kind of the overall idea of what the whole sermon's about. And then, um, and then we'll get to the, to the end part. Before we do that, though, um, the title is, is the High Priestly Prayer, and it's called that because Jesus is our high priest, right? You might have had a knock on your door before, and maybe, uh, maybe a Mormon missionary was there trying to convince you that Mormonism is true, and, and, and some of you may have kind of shooed them away, and but others of you may have invited them in for a conversation and, and talked to them. And if you talk to them, one of the things that, that, they'll, that they'll often say is that, you know, God had, had priests in the Old Testament, and, and we think that God doesn't change, and so God still has priests today. And, and, and you Baptists, uh, y'all don't believe that God has priests today. And so that's wrong. The Bible says God doesn't change. He has always had priests, and so we're Mormons, and we believe God has priests today, and we have different priesthoods, and, and, and some of those missionaries might even be uh, certain types of priests in the in, in the Mormon uh, in the Mormon group, um, and, and some of us might be tempted to answer. You know, you're you're right. We don't have priests in the Baptist Church, and so uh, so maybe you're right. Let's let's think about that, right? But the real answer is we do have a priest in the Baptist Church. Our priest is Jesus, and we don't need uh, we don't need to to keep having new priests or different priests. We don't need a priest that's that, that's on the earth today because Jesus is still alive today. Right? The book of Hebrews makes this point. In the Old Testament, they kept having to have a new priest because the old priest kept dying. Well, we have a, we have a priest, Jesus, and he, hasn't, he, he died, but he came back to life, and he hasn't died again, and so he's still alive right now, so we don't need another priest. We don't need a human priest. We don't need uh, a Mormon to, to be a priest for us because, because Jesus is our priest. And, and the priest in the Old Testament and, and, and Jesus is our priest in the New Testament and now um, did lots of things for the, for the people of God, Right? In the Old Testament, you had, the, you had three different offices. You had the prophet, and the prophet was the person who was like God's spokesman. He, he represented God before the people. And then in the Old Testament, you also had the king, and the king also represented God in some ways. He was, he was the ruler of, of the people. But then you had the priest in the Old Testament, and the priest was kind of the opposite of the prophet. The prophet was God's spokesperson who, who, who represented God to the people, spoke to the people for God. Uh, God would tell the the prophet things, and the prophet would tell the people. He was kind of the middleman between, uh, between God and the people. The priest was the opposite. The priest was also a middleman uh, between God and the people, but the priest did the opposite of what the prophet did. So the prophet, God spoke to him, he spoke to the people. The priest, the people spoke to him, and he spoke to God. And so the priest was the representative of the people before God. The prophet represented God to the people. The priest represented the people to, to God. Okay. And, and the priest would do lots of things for the people. One thing the priest would do, would, he, would, he would offer prayers for the people. And that's what we see Jesus doing in John 17. The priest would do other things, though. We read this long passage in Leviticus already this evening. And, and, and one thing that the priest would do would, is that he would offer sacrifices for the people. Right? And, and, and this, there's this big, long, convoluted passage there in Levit Leviticus 16. And you probably got kind of lost in all the details that were going on offering the bull and offering the goat and took, sending the other goat away and that word Azazel, what is that about and who is that and all, all those kind of things, right? 
But, but the point of that passage is, the point of Leviticus 16 is, there, the people had sins, and their sins needed to be dealt with, and there was only a specific way that they could be dealt with. And so the priest had to go in and had to wash himself and put on certain clothes, and he had to come out, and he had to, had to offer a bull as a sacrifice to cover his own sins and had to do certain things with that and take some of that blood inside the temple and, and do, or inside the, the tent of meeting and do certain, certain things inside there with that. Then he had to come back out, and, and the key to the passage is there were these two bulls on the Day of Atonement, or not, not bulls, sorry, these two goats on the Day of Atonement. And, and the priest would come out and he would put his hands on the two goats. And, and that would be symbolic of him transferring the sins of the people onto the goats. Even, even in that passage in Leviticus 16, it said that he would put, put his two hands on the goat's head and he would begin to confess the sins of Israel, the sins of the people. onto And, and symbolically, he was transferring the sins off of the people onto, onto those goats. And one of the goats would be sacrificed and, and his blood would be offered there on the, on, on the, on the altar and his his, his body would be uh, sacrificed on the altar, offered on the, on, the offer, on the altar, and that was to cover their sins, to, to atone for the sins of the people. And then the other goat, he would put his hands on his head and, tra- and, and confess the sins of the people and transfer those sins onto that goat, and that goat would be sent off into the wilderness. And that was symbolic of God removing the sins from the people. The sins are no longer on the people. The, the atonement sacrifice has covered that, and now those sins are, are carried off. Right? There's other parts of the Bible that, that talk about the sins being removed as far as the east is from the west. Right? You can't get any further away than the east is from, from the west. And that was symbolic of that. And here in the New Testament in John chapter 17, we have Jesus. He's about to go to the cross. This is kind of the end of Jesus' teaching ministry in, in the Gospel of John. He's been teaching, and, and, and uh, I mentioned before chapter 13 all the way up to, to the end of chapter 16 is, is red letters. That's Jesus speaking. He's teaching, and he's answering questions that disciples have, and he's teaching and teaching and teaching. And now he's getting to the end of his teaching ministry. He's about to go to, uh, to the cross. And it's just in chapter 18, the very next chapter, that he is betrayed by Judas, and he's arrested, and he goes through the, uh, the different questionings and the different uh, um, trials that he has there with, with Pilate and with the priests and with others. And, and then we see in chapter 19 that that's when he's delivered up to be crucified. Okay, And so this prayer in John 17 is right before he's offering himself as our sacrifice. He is the high priest who offered himself, the perfect priest who offered the perfect sacrifice himself. And so it begins to pray here in chapter 17. And, and like I said before, there, there are really three different sections to this prayer. First, he prays for himself. And then secondly, he prays for his disciples. And then thirdly, uh, we're going to see that he prays for us. Okay? So in, in verses 1 to 5, he's praying for himself. He says, when, when, uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so in these opening five verses, he's praying here for himself. He's praying for what he's about to do. He's praying for the cross. He's praying that God would glorify him even as he has glorified the Father. He's praying that God would accomplish and would finish and would fulfill uh, the, the ministry that he came to do. Strengthen me to go to the cross. Strengthen me to finish the plan. 
In the second section, beginning in verse 6, he, he begins to pray for his disciples. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them, and they've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, um, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled, a reference there to Judas. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So verses 1 to 4, he's praying for himself, that, that, that he, would be able, he would be empowered to, to complete the mission that he had, to die on the cross for our sins, to, to, to finish the, the, the plan that he came to the earth for. In this second section here, he's praying for his disciples, and he's praying much the same thing, that God would strengthen them. He's thanking God that they believed in, in, in the word, that the, the, that part of the plan that, that the Father gave him has been accomplished, and and, and yet he's also praying that the world wouldn't have an impact on them, right? He's praying, he's not going to, he, he doesn't pray that, that the Father would take them out of the world, but that they would be strengthened and that the evil one, would, they would be kept safe from the evil one. He's praying that their mission would also be successful, that their mission would also be accomplished, okay? And then he gets to verse 20, and, and listen to what he says. This is really, really neat. Should be really encouraging and comforting to us. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which is us, right? We've believed in Jesus through the word of the apostles, through the word of the disciples. They're the ones that, that were preaching the gospel in the first century. They're the ones who wrote what we have in the scriptures. And we've trusted, we believe what they had to say, and, and God has saved us through that. He, he's, he's praying for us, those that would believe in him through their word. And then here's what he prays for us, starting in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Okay, so in this section he's praying for, for us, for those that will believe what the, the apostles preached and what they wrote and the message that they spread throughout the world. Okay? Really quickly, we don't have a lot of time left, but really quickly, 
I want us to look at what he's praying for us. What is he praying for those that will believe what the apostles preached? And I think he, he prays for at least three things, okay? And we might be surprised what they are. If we were, gonna, if we were in Jesus' shoes and he was going to pray for people that were living in 2018, we might pray some different things than what he prays. But, but look at what he prays. First of all, he prays that they will be united. He prays for unity among the believers. The second thing he prays for is evangelism. And then the third thing he prays for is he prays about our future. He prays about our unity, he prays about our evangelism, and he prays about our future. There are several places where, where unity comes up uh, in verse 21, verse 22, verse 23, and, and then again a little bit in verse 26. But he prays that we will be united uh, really in two different ways. The first way is that we will be united with God. We'll be united with the Father and and with Jesus, that we will be united with God. And this is the, the primary unity that Jesus is praying for, that we will be one with the Father and that we will be one with the, with the Son. In one sense, this is the fulfillment of the first two sections of the prayer, right? The first section he prayed that his mission would be complete. The second se- section he prays that uh, for the success of the apostles' mission. And, and then now, in, in, this, in these final verses, verses 20 to 26, He's praying for things that can only happen if those first two prayers have already been answered. We can only be united to one another if Jesus' death on the cross was successful. We can only be united to one another if the, uh, if, if the preaching of the disciples, the preaching of the, of the apostles is successful and has carried on throughout the years and we've gotten that message. And so in a sense, he's praying here for the, for the conclusion for the, the, that the first two prayers would, would already be answered. The foundation of our unity with the Father is based on Jesus' work on the cross. Right? We cannot have unity with the Father unless our, son, our, our sins are dealt with. Unless our sins are, are, are dealt with. So in verse 2 he prays uh, that, that um, he says, since you have given me authority, given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. Right? The Father has given the Son authority to give eternal life. Well, we can't be united to the Father unless the Son has given us eternal life. In verse 3, he says that eternal life means knowing God. And so the definition of eternal life, we could say, is being united to God, knowing God, being one with God, being connected to, to God. So the foundation of our unity is, with, is, is, is based on the Son's work on the cross, the, the first part of the prayer, the means of our unity with God, the means of our unity with the Father, how that works out, how that happens, as I've already said, is the fulfillment of the ministry, teaching, doctrine of the apostles. In verses 6 to 8, Jesus says that he manifested his name to, the, to his disciples, to his apostles, and, and they've repeated that to us through their writings. In verses 17 and 19, it, Jesus is praying that they will be sanctified through the truth, and he sanctifies us through that same truth, through that same teaching, through that same doctrine. As the word is preached and taught and read and believed and acted on, the Holy Spirit transforms us more and more into the image of Christ, more and more into unity with the, with the Father, unity with God. But he also prays that we will be united not just with God, but also that we will be united with each other, with other believers. And, and, and if, the other, if, if praying that we be united with God is kind of the, the, um, the, uh, the, the primary unity that he's talking about, this next unity might be the, the, the primary or the main theme of, of this passage. Okay? And, and here's what I mean. 
If the unity between, between believers and God is, is the primary unity that Jesus is praying for, well, how do we know that we're united with God? Well, one way that we know, maybe the main way that we know that we're united with God is because we're united to other believers. We're united to other, uh, other children of his. It's the primary way that we recognize this unity that we have with the Father. Listen, listen quickly. You don't have to turn here, but listen quickly to 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, verses, starting in verse 7, John says this. He says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the very beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now listen to this. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If we try to say that we have unity with the Father, if we try to say that we're one with, with God, we try to say that we've been adopted into his family and we've become united to, to, to Jesus, and yet we hate other believers, we hate other Christians, we're not united to other, to other believers, John says we're lying. And John says that we're not even converted. He says that we're still living in the darkness, walking in the darkness, when we ought to be walking in the light. And so one of the main ways, maybe the main way, that, that we can have evidence that, that we've been united to, to the Father and to the Son is that we're united to one another. The question that comes up, though, is what does it mean to be united, right? What, is, what does that look like? What does that mean to, be, to have unity with one another? And there's different, different ways of thinking about it. We might think of unity the same way that we would think of, like, uniformity, right? Where in order to be united, we have to all be the same. And, and I hope that's not true, because if that were true, then we don't really have any unity, right? Because you're, there's nobody that's just exactly like you and believes exactly what you believe and thinks exactly what you think and acts exactly what, the, the way that you act and would make exactly the same decisions that, that you would make in every, every situation. You can't even find one person that's like that, much less a whole group of people, right? And so unity is something different than, than uniformity. It doesn't mean we, we don't have to be exactly the same on every little, on every little thing. Another, another way that, that we see unity tried to be acted out sometimes is, is through ignorance, right? Sometimes we try to have unity with each other by just ignoring certain things, by pretending there's nothing wrong, just to keep the peace, right? I don't know if, I don't know if y'all watch, used to watch that show, The 70s Show, where you've seen that, but the mom on that show is, this is a perfect example of, of, uh, of how she acted. There would be strife between the brother and the sister, there'd be strife between the brother and the dad or the sister and the dad, and, and she would be just trying to act like everything's fine and ignore everything, and, and I'm going to give you a piece of cake, and we'll all be happy, and just we're a loving, happy family, right? Well, it's not, that, that's not true unity. That's just faking it. That's just ignorance. The real way that we have unity is our unity among believers must be, uh, must be unity of love and truth. Unity of love and truth. Remember, that's what Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said that he's, that he's looking for those that will worship him in, in spirit and in truth, right? So we have to be connected to one another through, through truth. And then in 1 John, John tells us we have to be connected with one another through love. And so the way that we're united is through love and truth. 
we love one another with a true, real love, and we're committed to the truth. You're committed to the truth, and I'm committed to the truth, and therefore we love each other and we're committed to one another. One commentator says this, he says, the Father and the Son's unity is a unity of purpose and intention, and it's guaranteed by the Son's sacrificial and obedient self-giving. Okay? If we're going to be united to one another, our unity must be one of purpose and intention. We have the same purposes, we have the same intentions, we have the same, uh, the, the same plans, the same goals, and our unity must be guaranteed by each one of us being willing to give of ourselves to make sure that we reach that purpose, to make sure that we reach that goal, to make sure that we keep that unity. There's lots of different ways to divide the world up into different groups and different, different uh, sections and things like that. In my mind, there's, there's lots of ways to do that, but one way to do that, there's, there's, there's two different kinds of people in the world, right? There's ham sandwich people and turkey sandwich people. And you're one, of, you're, you're one or the other. You're either ham sandwich people or you're, or you're turkey sandwich people, right? There's, there's Coke people and there's Pepsi people, right? There's, there's UK fans and there's UofL fans. And, 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 and we're divided that way. You even see the signs of the UK and UL, uh, you know, a house divided. We have fans from, from each in, in our house. But, but first and foremost, we are the people of God. And so no matter if we're Coke people or Pepsi people, no matter if we're UK people or UofL people, we're God's people first. And we're united with each other. And our union in Christ, our union with one another in Christ, supersedes those things. More seriously, our church is full of people that are, some of, some of the people here are, are more Calvinistic in the way they understand the Bible, and some people here are less Calvinistic in the way they understand the Bible. And yet we love one another, and we're united to one another for the same purpose. We don't let that divide us. There's some people in our church that are more Republican. There's some people in our church that are more Democrat, right? But we don't let that divide us. There's some people in our church right now that absolutely love Donald Trump, think he's the best president we've ever had. And there's people in our church right now that absolutely hate Donald Trump, think he's the worst president we ever had, and hope he gets impeached tomorrow, right? But we don't let that, those things divide us because we're united by something more important than those things. We're united by something better than those things. We're, we're united by something that, that, that matters more than those things matter. I've been reminded of this lately as I'm uh, teaching a Sunday school class right now on, on the book of Revelation, and there's all kinds of different views and all kinds of different opinions and all kinds of different thoughts about the book of Revelation, right, Ms. Jetty? And, uh, and, and sometimes we have disagreements over, the, over those things in, in, in the class, but, but what we always come back to and what we always keep reminding each other is you know, there, there's some different ways to understand this, and may, maybe I'm wrong about some things. I know that I'm wrong about some things. Otherwise, I would be perfect, right? I just don't know what I'm wrong about, or, I, or, or hopefully I would, I would change those things. But I know I'm wrong about some things, and I know you're wrong about some things. And, and so as long as we both agree that Jesus is going to come back and get us one day, we can, we can have some disagreements over the details of how that's going to happen, over the details of when that's going to happen. We can have some disagreements over, thing, over some of those things and still be united to one another in, in love and still be united to one another in the same goal, the same purpose, right? We can still pray that Jesus is going to come back, and we can pray he comes back right now today even if we differ on how we think that's going to look when he does. We can be united together even in, even in some of those differences. The second thing that he prays for us is for our witness. And we, we see this in, 
in verse 21 and, and in verse 23, the end of those two uh, verses. He even says that, that in some ways this is the purpose of our unity, or at least one of the purposes of our, of our unity. Look at verse 21. He says, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, and then look at this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. One reason Jesus wants us to be united in him and united to one another is so that the world will believe that God sent him. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one again, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. One of the purposes for our unity is that the world might see and the world might believe. Obviously, preaching the gospel is necessary for salvation. No one is, is saved without hearing the gospel preached and repenting of their sins and believing in, in, in the gospel. And, and yet sometimes our, our unity or our lack of unity either adds to and, and, and is a help to the gospel or takes away from and is a harm to the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in Titus chapter 1 about some of the believers here in Crete. Titus chapter 1 verse 16, he says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They say that they know God, they say that they're believers, they claim to be Christians, and yet the way that they live denies him. I wonder how many of us have, have spoken to our neighbors or spoken to our coworkers or spoken to our family about Christ, and, and, and maybe the words that we're saying are true, but maybe the actions that we're doing are, are wrong. Maybe the actions that we're doing are, are hindering the words that we're saying. There's some question about whether he really ever said it or not, but you guys know Gandhi. He's, a, he's an Indian leader. He's a Hindu leader in, in India, um, Gandhi. And he supposedly at one time said, I like your Christ. I don't know who he was talking to, but it's a famous quote that, that he supposedly said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. He said, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, there's some, there's some questions about whether he really ever said that or someone just made that up and and attributed that to him. And, and obviously there's some problems with his thinking about Jesus. He doesn't understand Jesus. He says, I like your Christ, but if he's Hindu, he really doesn't like our Christ. He doesn't, he doesn't understand the truth about who Jesus is if he's saying he likes Jesus, but he's going to still keep being a Hindu, right? There's some problems with, with, with his thinking, but he's right about part of it too, right? Our behavior can undermine our message. The way that we act toward one another and the way that we act toward the world even can undermine the words that we say and the words that we preach. Christians that gossip about each other and complain about each other and, and just don't like each other deny the message of the gospel. If you say that you believe in Jesus and yet you find yourself often gossiping about other believers... If you, find your, if you say that you believe in Jesus, you say that you're following Jesus, and yet you often find yourself complaining about other people in the church. I'm not saying you're not a believer at all, but I'm saying that's, that's sin, and that's wrong, and that's bad. And, and you should question your heart if that's the case. Because John says that if you're a true believer in Jesus, then you'll love the brothers. 
Jesus prays that we'll be united in him, we'll be united with the Father, and we'll be united with each other. That's Jesus praying that, our high priest, Jesus praying that. And I'm confident that the Father is going to answer that prayer. So if, if he's not answering it in, in my life, I should maybe question what's going on. J.C. Ryle says this, he says, let us bear much, let us concede much, let us put up with much before we plunge into secessions and separations. Sometimes there are reasons to separate, right? Sometimes there might be a reason to separate from one group of believers and, and, and join with a different group of believers. There's a time that comes where that separation is, is, is necessary, but so often we separate way too quickly. So often we separate way too quickly instead of working through our problems or, or the, the, the ways that we've been hurt in order to remain together. I said before that true unity in Christ, true Christian unity is based on love and truth. There's sometimes where we have to separate, right? There's some cases where truth has been compromised and, and, and we're required to separate for the, for the sake of, of remaining faithful to the truth. But often we let small divisions separate us before they should. Often we let small divisions separate us before we even try to work through them. Jesus prays that we would be unified in Christ. He prays that our unity in Christ would, uh, would be a, a help to our witness, that the world might know that, that he is who he is, and the world might know that the Father sent him, and the world might know that he loves us because of our unity, through our unity, by our unity. And then finally here in the last three verses, verses 24, 25, 26, he prays for our future. And this is kind of amazing because he's been praying for the future the whole time, right? He's praying back in, uh, in, in A.D. 30 or what, 33 or whatever it was. He's praying for people that will be alive in 2018. The whole time he's been praying for the future, and, and now he's kind of turning his attention to the future future, right, to the, to the super future. Verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is praying here 2,000 and whatever years ago that we might be with him in heaven. Jesus is praying to the Father that we would be with him, we would see him as he is, we would see his glory for, for, for what it is. This is the outcome, this is the end, this is the, the, the fulfillment of our unity, right? It's the fulfillment of our unity with God. If we're really truly united with God, that leads to us being with God, us being with Jesus, us seeing him face to face, us being in heaven with him, and also with, with one another. Matthew Henry says this, he says, we may well believe that it was meant to cheer and, com confront and comfort those who heard it and to strengthen them for the parting scene which was fast drawing near. But for all who read it even now, this part of this prayer is full of sweet and unspeakable comfort. Surely the disciples who were there with him overheard him praying this and, and, and surely after his crucifixion, after their, their confusion over that, after he's resurrected, they see him, they would have remembered this prayer. John remembered it well enough to write it down. They would have remembered this prayer. That would have brought them much comfort, much encouragement that, 
That's what I remember. He prayed for us. One day we're going to go with him. He's not with us anymore. He's not here with us anymore, but one day we're going to go with, with him. It should comfort us also. Matthew Henry also says this. He says, we know little of heaven now. Our thoughts are all confounded when we try to form an idea of a future state in which pardoned sinners shall be perfectly happy. This morning in Sunday school, we read Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There was a lady in the class who, uh, who's at church a lot. She's not at church all the time, but she's at church a lot. But one of the reasons she's not here all the time is because she has several physical problems, several physical things wrong with her, and, and she's in almost constant chronic pain. And she was having a good day today, so she came to church today, and she was there for Sunday school, and she was here for church. But when I read that verse, we're reading the whole chapter, we read most of chapter 21 of Revelation, but when I got to verse 24, she said, oh yes, amen, that's my favorite verse. Right? Because there's a day coming when she's not going to be in pain anymore. There's a day coming when there are going to be no more tears. There's a day coming when there will be no more mourning. There'll be no more death. Right? And Jesus is here in John 17, our high priest, the one who leads us to God, the one who intercedes for us, the one who stands between us and God as our representative. And he's here praying in John 17 that that would happen, that that would be true, that that would come, uh, come, come to pass, come to be true, that we would be with him in, in heaven. There's a question, though, that, that still remains real fast, a question that still remains, how do we do this? If Jesus is so concerned that, that our unity uh, is so important to him and our unity leads to, uh, to legitimizing our, our gospel, confirming our gospel preaching, our gospel message, how do, how do we do that? How do we, we, it's, it's, all, it's all good to say we should be unified, we should have unity with one another, but then how do we do that? So, so real quick, three, three things. It doesn't happen naturally, right? Unity does not come naturally. If you think it does... Just look around at some of your families, look around at my family, look around at some of your neighbors, some of your friends, look around at your coworkers. Unity doesn't come naturally. It has to be worked at. And so, so three ways. First of all, the word. In John 17, 17, Jesus is praying here, and he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. If we're going to become like God, if we're going to become like Christ, the word has to do it. Right? So we should be reading the Word. We should be studying the Word on our own at, at our houses. We should be thinking through the Word and, and reading the Word with our families and our children and our wives and our husbands. And, and, and we should also make sure it's a priority that we be at Sunday morning preaching and make sure it's a priority that we be at, uh, at Bible studies and Sunday school and, and things like that whenever possible. Right? It's obviously not possible for everyone to be at everything, and we don't, we don't expect that. But we should make it a priority when we're able to to be at as much Bible into our lives as, as possible. When my dad was, when, when I was younger, my dad was building a fence in our yard. We were going to build a fence on each side of the yard going down to the, to the road. And so we had all this lumber, um, but it was, you know, too long. It was, we had posts up and we were going to put a piece of lumber going through, spanning three posts, and we'd nail it in the middle and on the two ends. And, and, but the, the board was longer than it needed to be, so we had to cut it to make it, make it fit, right? And so my dad cut the first piece, he measured it, uh, cut it, made sure that it fit, and then he took a magic marker and he wrote pattern on it on both sides. And that was going to be our pattern, right? And so, we, so, so from that point forward, we didn't have to count, we didn't have to measure the boards. We just laid that on there and we'd make a mark where the end of it was and we'd cut that board where that was, right? And we never put that board on the fence because that was our pattern. 
And if all the boards were cut to match that one, then that would mean that all the boards would match one another, right? If you have some kind of tool that has to be calibrated, you calibrate it to the calibration machine. And you calibrate all of them to that calibration machine. And if they're all matched to that one, that one standard, then that means they all match one another, right? Well, if we read the Word, study the Word, pray through the Word, and the Holy Spirit uses the Word to sanctify us so that we all are in the image of Christ, then that means that we'll all be in the image of one another as well, right? Obviously, we won't look like one another, but we'll both love like one another. And we'll both be committed to the truth like one another. And so the Word's important. The second way we do it is, is through prayer. Again, this is not natural. Unity doesn't come naturally. It's, it's a work that the Holy Spirit must do. And so I encourage you, I encourage you that, that to, to be regularly praying. On, on, on your prayer sheets that you pray through or however you do your prayer, I, I encourage you to be regularly praying that, that God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, would create unity among us. Create unity among us. So many things can cause divisions, so many things can create conflict. So many things can, can, can disrupt our unity, break our unity. Pray that the Holy Spirit will be creating unity among us. And then the last thing, the final thing, the third thing, the way that we do this is through presence. We can't be, re, we can't, we can't be united to one another if we're not around one another, right? We can't be united to one another if we're not, if we're not with each other. We can't form a love for people if we're, if we're never with them, right? It could be as simple as sitting with different people. I know we all have our spots on Sunday morning, so that might be out of the question. But we can change where we sit on Sunday nights, right? We can change where we sit on Wednesday nights. We can change who we eat dinner with on Wednesday nights at Wednesday night supper. Making sure that we're spending time with, with different people so that we can love different people. When I first moved here back in 2005, and, and I had a job where I couldn't come to church on Wednesday nights, and then my, my shift changed, and so I was able to start coming to church on Wednesday night. And, and one of the first things I did was I walked in for, for dinner, and, and I would sit at different tables. I don't know why, but just kinda ha- I just kind of did that. I sat with the youth some nights, and, and, and then some nights I started sitting with the older people. They weren't as older then as they are now, but I was sitting with some of the, some of the older people, right? And, uh, and, but, but through that, because of that, I, I loved them. I would, I, would as much, I, I would as much like to sit down and talk to somebody in their 80s at our church as I would somebody in their 20s or 30s at our church. And, and, and the Holy Spirit did that. God, God's done that through, through my heart and, and hopefully through their heart just, just simply by sitting down and eating, eating supper together once a week or once every two or three weeks, right? We can't love one another if we don't know one another, if we're not around one another, and we can't form a love for one another if, we don't have, uh, if, if we're never talking to people, having real real conversations with people, more than just a Sunday morning, how are you, shake my hand, good morning, right? Sit down and eat with each other. Sit down and go out to lunch with one another. Sit down and pray with one another. Come to Bible study with each other, right? That's how God does it. It's how the Holy Spirit does it. Jesus' Jesus's prayer is so focused on us being unified together for these reasons. Let's work for that same unity. Let's commit ourselves to that same unity. Let's work for that same unity here in our church. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that you are uh, a God who answers prayer. And God, I'm so glad that you're a God who creates communities of people. God, we thank you for your church. We thank you that you've brought each of us um, here to to First Baptist Church Fairdale, that you're working in our our hearts and our lives to to bring us together. And, and, And God, I pray that you would continue doing that even more. 
that you would cause us to love each other, cause us to be concerned for one another, cause us to be committed to each other. And, and God, I pray that you would build that unity on our, our joint collective commitment to the truth and commitment to you. God, I pray that you would press each of us more into the image of, of your son Jesus and that because of that we would begin to love each other more. That as we preach your gospel and as we uh, talk to family members about the truth of Jesus and as we uh, come to worship on Sunday mornings, God, as we have visitors coming here on Sunday mornings, I pray that our, our lifestyle, our lives, the way that we act, the way that we do things, the way that we talk about each other, the way that we think about each other would match the things that we say about you. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do that in us. We thank you for him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.